Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. And today, our episode is on the vintage case of the Brick Bat Slayer. Welcome back, everyone. Well, this weekend is our live show, Dr. Scott. I know. Very exciting. <laughs> very exciting. You can still get tickets. Please go to our Eventbrite link. It is in the show notes. It's also in our link tree on all of our social media, as well as on our website, on our live events page. And please join us as well as the LA History Podcast, LA Meekly, the Paranormal Podcast out of LA, Hollyweird Paranormal. And we're just going to have a great night at the historic event amazing Heritage Square Museum, and we're going to get a little ghost tour afterwards. So if any of that sounds cool to you, please come join us. We'd love, love, love to meet you guys. It'll be a blast. We hope you can make it. So folks, in our last two episodes, we catch our listeners up to the latest research on the incel movement. You know, Dr. Shiloh and I like to think of ourselves as setting really sort of the stride on this topic way back in 2018 when no one was talking about incels at the time. And it's really cool to know that a whole area of research has grown up around understanding this phenomenon within the threat assessment community. So please go back and give it a listen if you get a chance. We're really proud of all the research that we were able to share with you. So two months ago at the first annual Parapod Festival, we had the great opportunity to re-explore a collection of crimes that occurred at the Barclay Hotel in downtown LA. And while the legendary Barclay Hotel has a number of tragic and horrific claims to ignoble fame. <laughs> we were drawn to a particular case that involved a particularly brutal method of execution, and that was by use of a brick. So we really wanted to dive more into this case. We decided to really focus on what was going on here for this one victim at the Barclay, and it turned into so much more, so much that we have probably a longer vintage episode for you today because it doesn't just happen in LA. There's there's way more to this perpetrator. But yes, this is a very good time for a trigger warning because we're going to be covering a variety of murders and attacks with blunt force trauma. And there's some mention of sexual assault perpetrated on women and younger girls. There's some really brutal stuff here today, folks. There's one particular brutal attack that I'm going to go into a little bit of detail on. So I'll give another trigger warning right before then. Yeah, that'll be helpful. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The Barclay has a history that we need to lay out for a bit first. So from the start, the Barclay Hotel was initially known as the Van Nuys Hotel, where like the fabled Hotel California song, this was a place where many living things left in generally worse shape than when they arrived. It wasn't always that way, but it ended up that way at the end, really. The property was built as an investment by a Southern California entrepreneur and pioneer, Mr. Isaac Van Nuys. So the Van Nuys Hotel was a six-story Beaux-Arts Ball style building at 4th in Maine and downtown Los Angeles. And the building claimed its first casualty, James McNully, in September of 1896 during the rush of its construction. Newspapers reported McNully, in company with other workmen, was engaged in hoisting a large oil tank. The rope broke and a tank fell with a crash. McNully's right kneecap was broken. He was badly cut over the right eye and was bruised about the body. He made a full recovery and the building was soon completed. But that was just the beginning for this hotel's tumultuous history. 
I can't think of anything worse than a broken kneecap, by the way. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> well, it's not the worst, but it's well, bad. Yeah. So later to be renamed the Barclay Hotel, the Van Nuys Hotel presented an opulent grand opening to the public on January 19th, 1897. The Beaux-Arts building was designed by the firm of Morgan and Walls with a grandly luxurious interior and for the time, strikingly modern conveniences. Remember, Los Angeles at this time was still considered a fledgling frontier town on the verge of becoming metropolis. Down Downtown Los Angeles, which became a nexus and terminal point for the growing rail companies, was growing exponentially. The upper five floors, this being somewhat of a marvel in and of itself, were reserved strictly for guest rooms. And these rooms and floors were highly praised by the many initial visitors. A writer for the LA Times reported on the new hotel. The furnishings of the bedrooms are of rich character and the carpets are of late and elaborate patterns and the furniture of oak, birch, bird's eye, maple, and mahogany. There are 60 private and 10 public baths in the hotel. The stationary washstands in each room are conveniently arranged with mirror and electric light over each. A neat device for the electrical heating of curling irons in each room is a new feature of special interest to the ladies. But here's the thing. Downtown Los Angeles was constantly in flux with ongoing waves of people from all over the country coming to seek their fortune. Thieving bellboys and waiters were a recurring problem at this hotel. Con men and destitute women skipped out on their bills. Pacific Electric's Henry Huntington was stalked by an insane man who had just been injured by one of his company's streetcar and a patron was robbed. So there was a lot going on down there. Yes, all kinds of people from all walks of life coming together. The crime linking the Barclay Hotel to our serial offender for today is the attack on Elizabeth Reese in 1937. Elizabeth was a wealthy, well-traveled 71-year-old woman from Akron, Ohio, and she had just taken a solo trip around the Panama Canal. I mean, a feat in and of itself at the time and ended up docking in Los Angeles. She checks into the Barclay on December 19th, 1937. And by then the Barclay was somewhat of a, I don't know if rundown is the right word, but it, it was, was starting to get shabby, right? Yeah, it was on the downhill slide for sure. So I'm just thinking like, can you imagine stepping off the boat from this like never ending trip? And then now you're at the Barclay that's on its way down. I mean, <laughs> she sounds well-traveled and she's taken the solo trip. So I'm sure she's like, whatever. Right. <laughs> and there are reports that this was not her first time traveling to LA and staying perhaps at the Barclay. So I like to think that maybe she had an affinity for this property, perhaps remembering it a little bit more in its heyday. Right. So not a big deal to Elizabeth. But a few days after Elizabeth checked in, a housekeeper entered the room as she had not been seen in some time. And the housekeeper found Elizabeth seated in a chair in her hotel room, her skull severely fractured, but she was still alive. Articles of clothing were scattered around the room. The bedding was saturated with blood and the murder weapon was still in the room. It was a brick located in the covers of the woman's bed. And the motive did not appear to be robbery because Elizabeth still wore a large diamond ring and a gold watch sat right out on her dresser. And it was believed that the perpetrator entered her room through the fire escape as handprints were found on the windowsill. Six weeks after the attack, Elizabeth woke from a coma. She was deaf in her left ear, but she was alive and she lived until the age of 87. Wow. I mean, that's yeah. impressive. I mean, at that time, given what the state of medical care was, mm -hmm. that someone's in a coma for that amount of time, she was made of some hardy stuff. But the attempted murder of Elizabeth was very likely the work of serial killer Robert Nixon, who was given the moniker the Brickbat Slayer after he was linked through forensic evidence to several other attacks, both in downtown Los Angeles and in the city of Chicago, using his weapon of choice, a building brick. Yeah. 
so I looked up the term brick bat because I'm like, what? What? And you and I talked I about this. We're what like, is it? Yeah. What is it? It's just an old timey term for using a brick as a weapon. And there's so many bricks in this story. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this had to be because buildings were like being constructed. There's just bricks laying around everywhere. I guess it was just easy to find. There's lots of bricks and there's lots of women named Florence in this okay. <laughs> story today. So. So just realize we're not all talking about the same brick and we're not all talking about the same Florence. It's there's a there's a spectrum of them. There's a plethora of them. <laughs> Before we lay out the timeline of all these attacks, though, let's look at who Robert Nixon was. Please consider again, as we always say, that this information is murky at best given the documentation that is lost to time and the lack of accurate records due to inconsistent information that was given to authorities. Robert Nixon was reported to have been born in Tallulah, Louisiana, and Bunker Hill historian and writer Nathan Marsak notes that you will often read that Nixon was born in 1919, but there's evidence that he was born closer to 1914. It seems that there is some conflicting documentation and police reports from his early years in which he reported being a juvenile in hopes of getting a lighter sentence by authorities for burglary offenses. So remember, Remember that as we get on this story that here's someone who was like, huh, let me think of a way maybe that might get me a few years off if I yeah. lie about my age. Okay, Especially that's if you look younger. Yeah, that's important coming up. So there's no mention of a father present in his life. However, it seems like his mother was a cook for the sheriff of a parish in which they lived. It appears he likely completed fifth grade in Louisiana and then left in 1933 to live with a brother who was residing in Chicago. And then at some point, he then made his way west when his brother moved on to New York. This brought him to Reno, then to Oakland, and eventually to Los Angeles. Yeah, so it's definitely murky, but it gives us a little idea of him moving around the country. And in 1937, the year the attacks took place, he was living in a three-story apartment hotel at 803 South Central Los Angeles, which is in that Central Avenue. So it was right in the heart of downtown LA. And at this point, he's approximately 24 years old. We'll say that just because of some discrepancies. And at various points in his life, he did live in Chicago. It was reported that from July to September-ish, like the summer of 1937, he was employed as a chauffeur for a, quote, prominent Chicago wholesale businessman. He also claimed that the age of 13 or 14 was when he started chauffeuring as a main source of income. And this was something that he cited a lot whenever initially when he was sort of caught for petty crimes that he would say about criminal history. Basically, well, I don't need to commit crimes because I have this employment as a chauffeur. And therefore, like, why would I have to resort to criminal behavior? And one of his other claims was that when he came to LA, he made money as an extra in two Hollywood movies, one called Souls at Sea and one called Slave Ship. All right. Anyway, despite all that, let's lay out the timelines of the attacks that occurred in the spring of 1937 after Nixon is in L.A., but before he fled back to Chicago. Again, there are varying degrees of information for each of these events. Some covered more than others, depending on you know sort of the things that newspapers want to write about, the severity of the incident, and maybe who was the victim. They'd spend a little bit more time on it. Additionally, there are incidents that Nixon never admitted to, or there wasn't forensic evidence linking him to the crime, but the description of the perpetrator, the modus operandi, and the locations were strikingly similar. 
similar for all of these that we're going to talk about today. So we're going to list off some victims really quickly, just because it's an impressive list. And it's amazing that this was all found in research and that this this is existing after all this time has gone by. On January 25th, 1937, Zabie Call, 42, wife of real estate developer Harvey Call, was recovering from surgery at Montesano Hospital, an osteopathic sanitarium in what is now Silver Lake, Los Angeles. At 3.30 a.m., she woke to find a man hovering above her who beat her head with a brick. Her screams caused the offender to flee. Then, victim number two, on February 2nd, 1937, Elizabeth Reese, who we've described so far, was attacked at the Barclay, occurs right at this point. But then moving on, just several days later, on February 14th, there was a burglary that occurred. A couple visiting Los Angeles checked into the Rosslyn Hotel at 100 West 5th Street. Mr. H.D. Nash and his wife returned to their room and were startled to find Nixon looting their belongings. Nixon then fled out the window and down the fire escape, leaving what behind, Dr. Shiloh? A brick. A brick. Another brick. Okay. Victim number four, February 16th, two days later, 1937, Lila Torres lived alone in a ground floor apartment on South Santee Street in downtown Los Angeles. She was asleep when the sound of an ashtray breaking woke her. Just as with the previous victim, her screams scared off the burglar who fled out the window. Fortunately, her screams woke neighbors as well, who were witness to a black man, approximately six feet tall and 25 years of age, running down Maple Street. Now, so this is one of the ones that's possibly yeah. not him. It's absolutely possible, but it is interesting that these are all in the same area in the same timeline. Oh yeah, totally the same area. I actually ended up, maybe I'll post it on social media. I ended up taking a map and pinpointing where his apartment was. And then most, I mean, there's a huge cluster right around him. And then there's a few on the outskirts, like that hospital is a little out towards Silver Lake. There's some more like on just west of what would be the 110 freeway now. But I mean, these are a geographic cluster for wow. sure. Okay. But yeah, this is one where like the one where a brick wasn't left behind, <laughs> but it's right there. Like this is literally down the street from where he lived. So victim number five, this occurred in March of 1937. And the Valdez family was residing at 651 Stanford, just south of where Nixon was living. Florencio, Rose, they were a married couple and they had a four-month-old baby, Flora. And aren't those just the sweetest names? That's Florencio, great. Rose, and Flora. Such a, like, sounds like the sweetest little family, but it turns really tragic because on that Tuesday around 11 a.m., the apartment manager goes to check on the family after she's getting a ton of complaints from tenants about the baby just nonstop wailing. And that's already not a good sign. That's a bad sign. Yeah. Yeah. So she goes over, she knocks on the door and Florencio nor Rose come to the door to answer her knocks, but she can hear the baby crying still. So she ends up letting herself in and she found Rose with her nightgown pushed up to her neck exposing her new body, legs spread, a bloody pillow covered her face, and it was clear that she had both been sexually assaulted and then beaten to death. And a bloody brick was found under a sink in the home. Mm. So just again, a handful of weeks later, still in March of 1937, at two in the morning, a man named Harry Steed found a man climbing through his window at his home located at 515 Wall Street. Again, 
very close proximity. And when he surprised the intruder, the intruder dropped his brick and ran off. And then the very next day, we have an attempted murder, our victim number seven. And this time we know that Nixon's now working with another offender, Howard Jones Green. And we'll explain how that all comes out later. But on this date, they were snooping around Wilshire Boulevard for apartment houses to enter near Ingram Street, just west of downtown LA. And they enter an alleyway between a small house and an apartment building. And Nixon boosts Green into the window of apartment 105. And when they flip on the light, they encounter Zoe Damrell. And Nixon immediately begins beating her in the head with a brick, while Green then loots her pocketbook and a wristwatch from her nightstand. And Zoe survives the attack, but she suffered a fractured skull and some permanent brain damage. Mm. So it sounds like things are escalating. Mm-hmm. Not to say that poor Rose's death is not horrible enough, but now we're really going to be moving into an escalation of events. Victims 8 and 9, April 1937. Edna Warden and her preteen daughter, Marguerite, were living at the Hotel Astoria Apartments. Edna was a school teacher from New Hampshire who had been recently divorced from her husband, and he was suffering with severe PTSD after World War One. Back then it was called shell shock. Her husband had moved to the East Coast, leaving Edna and their only daughter in Los Angeles. So in September 1936, they moved in their modest two-room apartment in the Astoria at 248 South Olive Street. And like the Barclay, the Astoria had been among the finest residential hotels in Los Angeles. But 30 years after its opening, it had become a little tarnished. And although it was still suitable for respectable residents that were down on their financial luck, right? Edna herself was working with the Works Progress Administration, also known as the WPA, an American agency. Very, very famous program at the time that was literally lifting people out of poverty, yes. but, but not everyone. There were some people that were getting access to these jobs more than others, but it really kind of kept our country afloat. And we still, to this day, across the United States, we have amazing WPA buildings and parks and public spaces that were all created at that time. Really a genius of a program. So she's generating a little bit of money from a program that was part of the WPA called Volunteers of America, which actually is still around today. And every once in a while, she also received a check from her former husband. So they had this sweet little apartment with two beds, like right close to each other and a little tiny kitchen. And the apartment was packed with books that they loved, including works of Shakespeare, Dickens, Dante, all the Greek philosophers. They were also very much devout Christian scientists. And Edna herself was a contributor to the Christian Science Monitor, a very highly acclaimed nonprofit news publication that continues to this day. Yes. But on the night of Saturday, April, third. Marguerite said her prayers before crawling into bed with her rag doll tucked right under her arm and her freshly washed gingham dress was hanging right next to her from a light fixture. So they go to bed and then Sunday morning rolls around and the Astoria elevator operator, John Riley, was confused because every Sunday morning, little Marguerite would usually come down, greet him and retrieve the comic strips from the Sunday paper. And this Sunday she did not And it seems like he was probably already unsettled, a little on high alert, because earlier that morning, he had passed by their room and in hindsight, heard what he thought was a pretty unusual noise. And in several different interviews, he described it differently, like a moan 
or even at one point he said it was maybe a gurgling. And another quote, he said it was, quote, a sigh, something like a nightmare. And I'm sure that was after the fact. Oh, but it sounds horrific. Yeah. 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 So once it became afternoon, he realized that kind of his last hope that they had slipped off to church and he hadn't seen them was wearing thin because they had not returned. And he ends up summoning the building manager and together they were able to access the apartment window and peer inside. Clearly, they were able to tell that Edna and Marguerite were deceased. So they call the LAPD and Detective Lieutenants Thomas R. Bryan and Sostin R. Lopez responded to the call and just encountered a horrific scene. So some details here. Trigger warning, if you guys want to skip ahead a few seconds. Edna, the mother, she was nude. The lower half of her body was on the bed and her head was hanging down to the floor. And again, similar to Miss Valdez, her torn nightgown was pushed up to her neck. She had severe trauma to her head and Marguerite's pajama bottoms were also torn off and her pajama top was pushed up to her neck and her face was covered with a bloody pillow. And on top of that pillow was a bloody brick. Mm. Her face was badly damaged and it appeared that she had been repeatedly struck in the right temple. And in this case, Edna's purse was emptied and they found that just tossed on the floor. But it really had appeared that there had been access gained through the window again. Yeah, that seems to be his modus operandi. He always gains access through that window. The coroner's deputy was called to the scene and determined that Marguerite had been dead for some hours, but that Edna had lived through the attack and died much more recently, giving a lot of merit to Riley likely actually overhearing her suffering through that moan or deep breath that he heard through the door. Several other LAPD employees responded to the scene. Police chemist Ray Pinker, who literally has to be the hardest working employee <laughs> of the LAPD ever, Serious, I feel like we talk about him in every episode. Like, well, he should have his own just, show, right? Guy just worked for decades. I really need to look up if there's a biography of him because I would read it in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Officer J.B. Larbag of the Fingerprint Bureau was also responding, and as well as Detective Lieutenants Tad Brown and Miles Ledbetter. Well, the man who never sleeps, Mr. Ray Pinker, quickly determined that the killer or killers had entered through the kitchen window, pulling up the upper half of the double-hung window down from the top. He was able to locate 12-inch footprints of stockinged feet, and then he made casts of the footprints. So Detective Lopez was able to pull a greasy fingerprint smudge from a glass milk bottle that had been moved around the apartment. Hmm. Well, for weeks after the murders, dozens of officers were actively working the case. Like I said, this got a lot of attention. It was a mother, a young girl, just horrific. It, it, I found the most newspaper articles about this one. And so this included 24 homicide detectives, four squads of other LAP detectives, and then 50 officers from the Metropolitan Division. They were in patrol cars, on foot, in uniform, plain clothes. I mean, they just fanned out over the entire city to see who they could pull in. And dozens of suspects were brought in, mostly Black, based on the rash of similar crimes with eyewitness accounts of a fleeing suspect being a Black man. And they were interrogated. They had their fingerprints taken. And then the police also focused on men who worked as car washers because... 
the prince in the warden case, the the mother and the daughter, and some previous attacks had had a an element of having like grease in the fingerprint. So not just like an oily, greasy hand, but actual like grease from perhaps working near cars. So after the warden attacks, the brick assaults just abruptly ceased. And it was believed that because of the heavy police presence that the suspect or suspects had skipped town. After a month of no leads or suspects linked to the fingerprints, detectives did a really did really great police work, really great detective work. They prepared letters and mailed copies of these letters to 300 police departments across North America, basically saying, here's what we got with these serial attacks. Are there any similar crimes out there happening with, you know, laying out the type of perpetrator, the MO, all of that. And they did receive a lot of responses, but only one city really stood out as having very similar crimes, and that was Chicago. So once they reached out to Chicago detectives, they learned that Chicago had been able to pull a print, but was only a partial latent left print left at a crime scene that was a rape attempt, as well as you know, some some burglary, some theft of items. But this was at the home of Miss Florence Castle, who had actually been murdered during this, these other crimes that had taken place. And the the catch there was, of course, the murder weapon in that case was a brick. So this case had happened in June of 1936. The print, unfortunately, was too smeared to be conclusive and to be able to compare but detectives Brian and guys from LAPD were certain that the same killer was working both in L.A. and in Chicago at this point. Astonishingly, a few days after they reached out to Chicago Police Department, Chicago wife and mother Ms. Flores Johnson was attacked and murdered by a man with a brick. And this time an arrest was made. The suspect was covered in scratches and fresh blood. He identified himself as a Thomas Crosby. After his arrest, LAP detectives scoured their records and found that a Thomas Crosby had been arrested on a juvenile burglary charge in Los Angeles. It was looking really good for their string of unsolved cases, but the forensic evidence was also there to seal the deal. Thomas Crosby's fingerprints from his juvenile arrest matched those left at the warden murder as well as prints left at the attack on Zoe Damerel. Just to be sure, Chicago Police Department fingerprinted the Thomas Crosby they had in custody and the prints matched the ones on record for the LA attacks. It turned out that Thomas Crosby was actually Robert Nixon. At last, the Brickbat Slayer was captured. Yes. So let's get into the Chicago crimes because Nixon's rampage in L.A. wasn't his only burst of violent criminal behavior. On June 29th, 1936, so this is the year prior to the L.A. murders, Florence Castle, again, going back, this is Florence number one, if you will. Okay, thank you. She she was a 24-year-old woman. She was murdered in her apartment at the Devonshire Hotel, which really confused me because of like Devonshire area of Los Angeles. Right, right. <laughs> I was like, what? But this was in Chicago and she had worked at a nightclub called the Palace Gardens and Robert Nixon worked at the Palace Gardens as well. And he was a porter and he was shining patrons shoes there. He stated later, quote, I thought Miss Castle was the most beautiful woman in the world. Sometimes I shined her shoes and after a while I began to speak to her. One night I asked to see her home. She was angry and told me not to talk to her anymore. So in the early hours of the morning of her murder, after a shift, Nixon ends up following following Miss Castle home. So after she got home, what he did is he stood outside the apartment building and waited to see which apartment the light went on. In. Okay. So then he goes up the fire escape to that window. He enters her apartment where she is there and 
to his surprise, there's a seven-year-old boy there as well. Her son doesn't stop him a bit. He, in front of her son, he attempts to rape her. He then repeatedly hit her in the skull with a brick. And then he takes her lipstick and on her vanity mirror, he writes Black Legion Gang and a skull and crossbones. So he later said this was to just totally throw off the cops because the Black Legion was a white supremacist group that was active in the Midwest during the Great Depression. And I don't know why. <laughs> Again, not a lot of forethought to this, but it's it's something that he was very confusing to the police when they got there. So Miss Castle's young son ends up going down to the lobby clerk and reports the attack. He is unscathed through this whole thing. And he describes the perpetrator as a big black man who had, quote, done something bad to mama and now she won't wake up. They were able to pull a full set of right hand prints from the windowsill and the investigation was on. So a few months later, Alda Deary, who was 23 years old, was preparing for bed in her room, number 515 at the Washington Hotel. Robert Nixon came up the fire escape through her window and hit her in the face with a brick. He tore her dress down the front and raped her and then used the brick to beat her unconscious and then went on to use one of her stockings to strangle her. The woman in the next room heard groaning at 4.30 a.m. and smelled smoke, so she went in to check on her and then found Alda barely alive. Alda's clothes were in a pile in her closet and had been set on fire. Alda recovered and described a large black man with a southern accent as being her attacker. So this attack was also before the Los Angeles attacks, however. So Nixon, once he fled in L.A. in the spring of 1937... He was on a rampage again by summer back in Chicago. So in July of 1937, Betty Bryant, who was 28, was in her room on the fifth floor of the Hotel Lorraine. She was married, but her husband was away on business. So here we have the same victimology and the same MO. Nixon climbed the fire escape, entered through her window, and proceeded to rape and beat her. Then at 2 a.m., a hotel bellboy heard a faint cry for help. The bellboy grabbed the manager and they entered the room to find Betty unconscious and a discarded brick on the floor. Then in August, Virginia Austin was also living at the Washington Hotel where Nixon had previously killed Alda Deary back in 1936. After gaining access to Virginia's room, Nixon beat her with a brick, raped her, and stole $3 from her purse. Then... I mean, we're, wow, we're almost out of breath here. Mm. Just one day later, Florence, a student nurse at the Chicago hospital, was resting in her dorm room when a man stepped inside from the fire escape through the window. She screamed and the prowler fled. A few days later, this young woman's roommate, Anna, was in the same room taking a nap in the early morning hours before another shift. When Florence then entered the dorm room to find the same large-statured young man from the week before. Again, he fled. And when she flipped on the lights, she found Anna nude except for her stockings and white shoes. Brutally raped, her skull crushed, and a blood-stained brick abandoned on the prints found in this case matched the prints from the Florence Castle case the woman Nixon had followed home from the nightclub. Yeah, so again, good to note because it seems like every woman in Chicago in the mid to late 30s was named Florence and it can get a little confusing but we had three different name yeah, yeah we had very popular name three different women named Florence who were victims but anyway by this time police are on high alert obviously I mean they are they literally start guarding the fire escapes at all hotels hospitals and other institutions where women live alone and due to this response again the attack stops so Nixon lays low does not offend again until May of 1938 in Chicago and and this time he has an accomplice with him again. So Nixon and his friend Earl Hicks, whom he had 
met the previous year, they entered the apartment of Miss Florence Johnson. This is the attack that occurred just after LAPD had been in contact with Chicago PD and when Nixon was taken into custody. So she was a registered nurse, wife of a firefighter, and Nixon and Hicks had entered the apartment through the children's bedroom window and they came upon Florence who was sleeping and they began attacking her. And when she screams, Hicks flees, he bolts, but Nixon remained and continues beating her with a brick. He then flees when Florence's sister enters the room, disrupting the attack. But unfortunately, Florence ended up passing away from this attack. So Nixon was 5'11", 140 pounds when they arrested him. And upon his arrest for Miss Johnson's murder, he immediately states that Hicks was with him and gives him up, like gives up his location, everything. Aside from implicating himself in the murder, when Hicks was arrested, they both then confessed to the crime again and eventually walked detectives through the crime scene, like literally go back and explain how they gained access and how they carried out the attack. And the Chicago police note, okay, Hicks has a criminal record kind of is like this petty thief, but he really had no violent history. So it makes sense that once shit got real, he fled and Nixon was the one that stayed behind and did the dirty work. So on further questioning, Nixon was presented with the fingerprint evidence linking him to the Florence Castle case. And he confessed to this murder as well. And the same went for the admittance of the murder of the nursing student named Anna. He described this rape and murder in detail to a police stenographer during the interrogation, then went on to draw a map of the Washington Hotel and gave details of the victim's rooms for detectives confessing to the attacks on Alda Deary and Virginia Austin in that location. He did the same for the victim at the Lorraine Hotel. And in one visit to a crime scene, the state attorney had all the furniture in the room rearranged, and Nixon noted this when he entered to show how the crime occurred. Very interesting, just to make double sure that this is not some person whose fixation is just on confessing yeah, to crimes. Totally. Yeah, it was it was a nice little test there. So LAPD lieutenants Brian and Gaskill arrive in Chicago on May 31st, 1938, and now it was their turn. So this is when Nixon reported that he also had an accomplice back in Los Angeles, and he names Howard Jones Green, who had also traveled with him to Chicago. So remember, we said when the police started flooding the streets in L.A., it seems like the suspect or suspects fled or just stopped. And this was certainly the case. He said they had known each other since they were teens in Louisiana. And Nixon asserted that they perpetrated the killings of Edna and little Marguerite together. Details are a little confusing in the records, but it seems that they located Green in Chicago and brought him in for questioning as well because he denied his participation in the Wooden killings. He denied his participation in the Warden killings, but stated that he and Nixon had beaten a Japanese man in Los Angeles and that they had perpetrated the attack on Zoe Damrell. So he ends up being extradited, brought back to LA with the detectives in June of 1938. Meanwhile, Nixon and Hicks were indicted for the murder of Lawrence Johnson in Chicago on January 27th, 1939, and Judge John C. Liu sentenced Hicks, who turned state's witness against Nixon, to 14 years imprisonment. And back in L.A., the other accomplice, Howard Green, was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon and burglary in the Zoe Damrell attack. And he did his prison time at San Quentin. He paroled in 1941, and then he went back for multiple 
prison stints in his adult life. But Nixon, so Nixon was tried in Chicago and he was convicted by the Cook County Criminal Court on August 6, 1938. So pretty quick. I mean, they were like interrogating him, interviewing him in May, right? So just a couple months later, and he was sentenced to die by the electric chair. And that took place on October 21st. Again, just a Another handful of months later, immediately before he was to die in an attempt to quote unquote, clear his conscience, Nixon called authorities to his cell and he did confess to the murder of Rose Valdez in Los Angeles before he died by electric chair. Wow. Fascinating case. Fascinating. Fascinating criminal. Really interesting because when we first covered this case in a little bit more depth, a little, well, a little less depth actually at the Parapod Festival, I made a lot of assumptions. I made a lot of assumptions not knowing anything about this case. And I'm so glad that there's research out there that has corrected my view on this. But let us provide a framework for you just historically what's going on. We talk a lot about understanding the time or the era in which our vintage episodes occur. And of course, this one is no exception. The Great Depression was a time of unbelievable struggle for all Americans. Although clearly, you know, on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, people suffered a lot worse. But we don't talk about in American history about how the impact on African Americans was markedly worse than it was for the general population, aggravating African Americans already dire economic situations. Mm -hmm. And in the US, the 1930s saw the first real efforts at creating public assistance programs to support the poor, the indigent, the unemployed. However, many reports show that these programs were incredibly discriminatory about who received benefits, providing significantly less aid to African-Americans than to whites. And some charitable organizations even went so far as to exclude blacks from their soup kitchens. Very interesting. You look at those black and white photos of the soup kitchen lines. Rarely do you see people of color in those lines because they probably weren't allowed. Yeah. I'm actually reading a book about, you know, sort of the beginnings of Los Angeles, looking at it from like an entertainment perspective and then some of, you know, like Mulholland and they're talking about how attorneys would say, no, you can actually charge a different price to non-whites for a certain item, like at the grocery store. And yeah. it's, it, it's totally legal. Like you yeah. can do it. Like it's fine. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah. You can do that. <laughs> Yikes. But by 1932, half of the African-American population was unemployed or underemployed. And in some northern cities, white citizens were calling for the immediate termination of blacks from any and all jobs in order to employ whites. They were the first to be let go from their jobs. And their unemployment rate was two to three times higher than that of their white counterparts. Yeah. So as you can imagine, tensions markedly emerged in the South where lynchings were a regular occurrence. Racial violence, once again, reared its ugly head and lynching surged from eight in 1932 to 28 in 1933. Mind blowing. Yeah, it it really is. It was a time of great struggle and injustice for the black community who were left to fend for themselves in a society that had turned its back on them. And we are seeing this in the press coverage because it was not only racist, but it was also completely unprofessional and irresponsible. Those feel like very small terms for what it actually was. Yes. But despite the era that this occurred in, the media had a duty to report the facts. 
not to perpetuate cartoonist and dehumanizing stereotypes while basically inciting racial tensions, but they did. And the crimes were tragic enough without the added racism and sensationalism that they kind of merged together in this grotesque way. Clearly, this is just a, another perspective that we all benefit from being educated about that this type of racism was not just happening in Southern states. It was across sure. the country and, and very much a problem. So this is an interesting twist on the way we look at this here wrapping up this episode. So yes, the crimes that Nixon perpetrated were heinous and the press coverage absolutely aggravated community tensions further with papers calling him a dim-witted African-American, then going on to dub him the brick moron. And then as days passed, the press dug in even further to this narrative of just racist rhetoric, calling him a slow-witted colored youth and a colored moron. The Chicago police then went to contact the sheriff in Nixon's hometown of Tallulah, Louisiana. And that sheriff allegedly reported that Nixon had been a pickpocket and a thief and allegedly stated that, quote, nothing but the rope will cure him. Oh, yeah. gosh. So while the Chicago slangs were depicted as senseless crimes, there was another layer or level of crime, and that was being perpetrated by the press, as we said before. In one notorious story, the Chicago Tribune likened Nixon to a jungle beast, using racist tropes to describe him as the missing link in human evolution. We all know what that means. They're yeah. they're calling him an ape. It's terrible. Oh, no, there's there's... They're not even being, you know, cheeky about it. There's right. some really horrific stuff in there. Actually, well, here we go. I have some right here for you. But so of this one particular piece, the author Charles Lavelli described Nixon's physical characteristics in a way that evoked similar imagery common in the mainstream press at the time. And he summed up the description of Nixon as this, quote, he is very black, almost pure, his physical characteristics suggest an earlier link in the species. Oh my God. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, there were like, they invited the press to some of these where they would take Nixon and his co-defendant back to the scenes of the crime, you know, where they were showing how they're right. We him. talked about that where he's walking through. Yeah. Yeah. But they would bring the press. And so the, the way that the press was writing about it was just stuff I don't even want to repeat as they were observing this. We also have that subscription to newspapers.com. And every once in a while, you'll see one oh, of the illustrations yeah. and they are horrific the way they just, mm -hmm. you know, the, they're really, really racist representations. And I, I mean, I wish I could say that now we're a hundred years out and that's over. But unfortunately, when we had a black president, there was a lot of that going on as well and continues sure. to this day. It's just yeah. a very, very bad. So along with the depiction of Nixon in the tropes of the dangerous black buck, the press also then ran stories on the victims, like with Florence Johnson, you know, depicting her as her mother of two, which she was. And the newspapers ran photos of her children, like with their arms around each other, side by side, sad faces, which I get, but it's also yes, exploiting, right? <laughs> totally exploiting these poor babies and bearing such headlines as orphaned by crime. And what these stories did was just completely aggravated the racial tensions in Chicago. Yeah. So, you know, they're very much playing both sides to this and just fueling the flames. Yeah, I just I think this is an important conversation, an important point to make. And certainly, you know, you and I have a particular perspective of looking back through the past. And I'm not saying that it would be realistic to have different expectations for those reporters or for those detectives or whoever is forwarding that sort of narrative. But it's something to really be aware of that 
that we need to move beyond that. And it's a hundred years later and we're still mm-hmm. struggling with these horrible, horrible tensions and pitting people against each other. So that goes on to another part of the conversation, which is very interesting. I mean, we always like to talk about that with the science we have and the theories that we have about serial killers. So Nixon is an outlier by today's understanding of criminal profiling for serial killers. So he meets the criteria for gender. No, no doubt about that. Male range of 24 to 35 years old. But even though we know the ethnic makeup of serial killers are more diversified than originally thought when they started being studied in the 70s and 80s as a person of color in 1937 Los Angeles, this makes me or it made me wonder if any of his confession was coerced. Like yeah. at least that was my first impression, my oh, first totally. uninformed, uneducated impression when we started the research on this. But then we also like it just continues and you see more and more victims and you realize, no, 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 no this is a very different picture, this portrayal of black serial killers as dim-witted and developmentally disabled is a narrative that's been going on for a very long time. While white serial killers are depicted as cunning and intelligent masterminds of murder, it's just another example of how deep racism runs in our society. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying, people. I'm not (laughs) not by any means justifying these horrific crimes. I'm saying that we as psychologists and investigators or forensic specialists have to constantly crank open our awareness to look at the big picture here. And this is just really, really significant. Yeah. And when we were just looking at the one crime at the Barclay, you know, it was like, okay, was this the fall guy sort of in LA? But then you start seeing all of the evidence and the linkage from the two different cities and the very, you know, like exact same MO. Oh my <laughs> gosh. And the like you were saying earlier, when we were, when we were putting notes together, the amount of planning that went yes. into this. And yes, yeah. yeah, you could like, yes, we could say that maybe with the number of crimes he had done, maybe he should have hidden his things better. But I mean, the hidden is, I don't even know where I'm coming up with that. But I'm thinking, no, this actually does fit. Like I'm leaving my mark. Like I want you to know that yeah. I was here. Like he he's actually hitting it piece yeah. by piece for every other way we look at a criminal profile of a serial killer. Oh, totally. I'm leaving my mark and it's a brick, which is super porous. So you're not going to get a fingerprint off of that. Like here, you can have the murder weapon because right. it's not going to link back to me. It was a formula that kept working, right? Fire escape, woman that lives alone, beat her with a brick and sexually assault her. Yeah. Sexually assault in most cases. And that was it in and out. And, you know, he had, this was over. I mean, this is really significant. I I can't believe he's not more well-known for one. I couldn't find one podcast that has covered him. And just to think of in between 1936 and 1938, this rash of brutal crimes between the two cities. I mean, he got away with a lot for a good period of time. So, and that's a know, lot of travel between two major cities at that right. time. So, that's even saying, would did he stay overnight in any linkage cities? You know, were yeah. there other crimes in other cities that just weren't connected to this? Because mm. that in itself is a problem of the racism. Like you lock someone into a very limited box and you're not taking in all the other data that's available. Right, right. But going back to what you were saying, and thankfully there is research that provides a challenge to this generalized profile of the typical serial killer. You know, the iconic character of Hannibal Lecter from Sides of the Lambs, as well as Patrick Bateman from American Psycho are the prime examples of biased representation. And this contrast in media portrayal perpetuates the harmful stereotypes that we're talking about, the biases. And then it reinforces the notion that Black individuals are inherently inferior 
even as serial killers to their white counterparts, even when we're talking about these really horrific criminal acts, even though, you know, we're talking about villainous characters, like <laughs> the ones I named, or even just how each of these vintage crimes has its own name, like the Brickbat Slayer, they all turn into characters. Yeah, exactly. There's so many layers to this that just need to be pulled apart. And hopefully, like, I mean, honestly, after we've looked at all this research and, and, really immersed ourselves in this this character. I do hope someone looks into it further because I think there's more research to be done and, and more of a story to be told. We did find something really fascinating that we want to share with you kind of as we wrap up because this actually is some research that, by the way, is now 10 years old. Oh my so God. Why hasn't this gotten more attention? This it's, bums me out that I wasn't aware of this. But in the 2013 February issue of the Howard Journal of Crime and Justice, author Alan Branson composed an article entitled African-American Serial Killers Overrepresented Yet Under-Acknowledged. I know that sounds... Yeah. I know yes. that sounds like a weird title, like under acknowledged, but bear with me because I think what this guy is doing is pretty genius. And it makes the assertion that race may well play a part in how African-American serial killers fly under the radar. And I want to share with you a long quote from Branson that posits some really fascinating ideas. So Dr. Shiloh and I will split it up. We're going to share with you a quote from the abstract of this paper that is in our show notes. It mm -hmm. is in full PDF on the web for free. It reads beautifully. I highly recommend that you read it. I'll click on the link, but Dr. Shiloh, start us off. Branson says, can you name an African-American black serial killer? In the US, the answer is often silence. For those who can remember it, it might be Wayne Williams, the so-called Atlanta child murderer. More astute individuals could mention the more recent DC snipers, who while not comparable to the traditional media portrayals of serial killers, do qualify as such based on the FBI's assessment. The existence of African-American serial killers is a fact that appears to have escaped the attention of the American public. Previous research has identified 90 Black serial killers beginning in 1945, yet their notoriety and celebrity are absent from America's popular cultural landscape. Despite the fact that numerous television shows, news reports, and films address the serial murder in fictional and non-fictional portrayals, there remains a dearth of information and portrayals regarding Black serial killers. This is an interesting conundrum. So he goes on to conclude, the media show little reticence in portraying Black males as low-level criminals, but rarely portray them as serial killers. This article suggests that the unquestioned ethnocentric profile of the serial killer as a white male in the U.S. was created by the FBI, and subsequent media portrayals have reinforced this myth. Consequently, the dominant media portrayals of serial murderers are white male perpetrators. The impact of race-based assumptions among law enforcement agencies and the public regarding the criminality of any group poses a danger to that whole society. Damn. Yes. Yes. Right? <laughs> oh my God. That are you guys, the article is so good. You have to read it. Yeah. I, I I'm sure there's more out there. I mean, definitely, you know, we we did talk about at Parapod Festival when we just brushed on this topic of how, yeah. I mean, we know it's much more diverse than we once did. And also, you know, the same goes with sex offending, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's kind of similar to just, if I say sex offender, what do you picture in your head? And it really, like, we need to get away from those stereotypes because it's everyone and, and anyone. So, so yeah, I, I mentioned that I couldn't find any podcasts that had covered this topic, but what I did find, what I sent you this morning was a really, well, there's several podcasts out there, but they play old dragnet 
radio shows from the 40s. And, you know, these are LAPD detectives working crimes each episode. And it's totally like ripped from the headlines because what they did is in this episode, it's they are hunting the Brickbat Slayer in downtown Los Angeles. And they depict a detective story that's very similar. You know, they they change names to protect the innocent. (laughs) Yeah, but they also keep it as a person of color and then do the actors i mean it is 1945 but i don't want to make any excuses like the 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 accents are so racist (laughs) did you think so i thought so yeah i thought they were using actual people of color i thought that's what the host said at the top of the show that he was actually praising them for actually using people of color but yeah i just don't know but i don't i mean it'd be interesting because i i mean i'd have to look at the show notes for that to see where yeah. he got his research. I mean, I'm a yeah. real fan of old time radio anyway. I listened to a show called The Horror, which is a collection of all the spooky stories from like the 1930s all the way up to the 1950s that were on radio. Yeah. But the sound quality varies sometime. And this one is like full of like that real 1940s cop talk. And One of the cops is doing an interview in Spanish and he even says, do you still know Spanish? He's like, I got that high school Spanish. And then like, of course, <laughs> like his Spanish is just super whitewashed right. <laughs> but but yeah I, I i might have heard it incorrectly but i thought he noted like for the time they actually used people like actors of color and yeah so what they did is they basically changed some of the victims and the perpetrator i believe yeah because the name that Montero or Montoya or something was his name. But thank you for, yeah, but thank you for coming up with this idea. I think this is great. And hopefully somebody out there, maybe another student we're inspiring to go the doctoral route will write an article or do their dissertation (laughs) on black serial killers. Because clearly we need to expand our understanding. I mean, it's just, there's so many layers to it. I mean, it's just like amazing stuff. I hope somebody does research it. Well, I mean, just think like Samuel Little, right? Like, I don't want to call anyone a genius, but he got away with it for so long all across the United States and right. here in Los Angeles and, you know, finally caught him and copped to all of it. But yeah, it's we need to find more of those cases that fight against these tropes and stereotypes. Exactly. So, all right, everyone. Thanks for joining us for our vintage episode. We certainly hope we will see you this weekend at Heritage Square. Please, please come. Yes. And until we hear you or you hear us next time, we are LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license, and you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. 
Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks.